Our scripture lesson today comes from the Hebrews, um, the Hebrew writer. Uh, This is to the early church uh, in a time of great persecution, um, and it is a call for steadfastness and to hang on uh, in the faith. Let's share God's good word together. So come on, let's leave the preschool finger painting exercises on Christ and get on with the grand work of art, grow up in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. needs God. With all the advances in technology, when we can make our houses warm when it's cold and cold when it's hot, and we can turn lights on in the middle of the night, and we can draw the shades in the middle of the day, and we can control our environment, do we still need God? Do we still need the God that we grew up with? Who needs God? Uh, Over the next number of weeks, we're going to enter into uh, a different sort of sermon series, one um, that we haven't really done before in the same sort of way, uh, where we really look at some of the issues that the culture is having uh, with faith, with Christianity in particular. And and what we're trying to do, friends, so so that everybody knows where we're trying to head, is that we're trying to extend the on-ramps. We're trying to make it easier for people to come into the faith, particularly those who once had faith and then have left it. We want to lower the rung of faith so that people can climb up and and find faith again and find salvation again and find a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, so what I hope to do is that many of us will bring friends that maybe have a foot out of faith or have stepped out altogether, and this will be a way for them to step back in. And I also know that for some of us in the room, while we may never say it out loud, uh, we're not that far apart either. There are things that we have doubts about, things that we have struggled with, and and we wonder at times whether we really have the faith that we grew up with. So we're going to get started. Uh, If you have your sermon notes, I invite you to take those out. Uh, But know that what we're talking about here is not so much about doctrine or belief as it is about direction. And, And the direction that we're trying to get folks to do is to turn our lives towards Jesus and to follow Jesus. That's the goal of this church, is to follow Jesus and look more and more like him every day. That's our goal. So as a way of introduction, um, Hebrews is written to Christians. Not not all the Bible is written to Christians. Uh, The entire Old Testament is written to the Jewish faith. 
Um, but particularly in Hebrews, uh, the writer is writing to a persecuted group of folks um, somewhere between the years 60 and 95. Um, this was a very, very difficult time. Uh, those of you who know history well will know that the very temple in Jerusalem was torn down, completely demolished in the year 70. And so this was a very difficult time, uh, the sort of time that if anybody could catch you taking communion, you were dead. Later in that week, they would grab you, they would raid your home, they would take you, your sons, your daughters, your slaves, whoever they could find, and they would dip you in wax and use you as a torch at the next party for Caesar. Or they might saw you in two, or uh, they might, as they did to thousands, tens of thousands, they would line the outside of the city wall of Jerusalem with, cru- with, with crosses and put people on them as a warning to say, anybody who doesn't worship Caesar as God, anybody who does what these fools are doing, this is going to happen to you. And so outside of Jerusalem during this time, the completely surrounding the city were people hanging on crosses as a warning not to cross Rome. It's a very, very difficult time. And so the writer is writing to people, some of whom are trying to hang on to the faith, and others who are just out. They're like, no, no, like this is just foolish. Um, I'm, I can't do this anymore because it'll, it, I'll die or my family will die. I can't have anything to do with it. And, and this is my own interpretation. Maybe you've heard this before. This is, this is not the way the Hebrew writer wrote it, but this is my interpretation. Aging is inevitable. Maturity is optional. Will you say that with me? Aging is inevitable. Maturity is optional. And, and some of you know what I'm talking about. I've met 60-year-olds um, that are still 3-year-olds, Right? They just simply live the same year over and over again. And if I look at a, them and I look at a three-year-old, I'm like, yeah, the behavior's about the same. Can't really tell the difference. Maybe you've met someone like that in your life. But that's not how it is to be with us. We are to actually grow each year of our life. We're not simply to get stuck. And sometimes when people have trauma or tragedy, they get stuck. Um, and they, whatever year they had the tragedy, that's where they stay. And they need help pulling through. It takes a community to do that. Aging is inevitable. Say it again with me. Maturity is optional. And that's what our calling is today, is to mature, to grow up our faith in Christ. There's a problem with maturity, though, and that is this. It's the requirement of leaving behind elementary teaching. Now, notice that it's not rejecting the elementary teaching, but building upon. Okay? Uh, Our son Noah is here today, all the way down from Wichita State. Welcome. And so he is freaking me out because he is in honors calculus three, right? I'm a guy who took college algebra four times, like to, to get, get through it. Okay, so this is really weirding me out. But here's the thing about this. You can't do calc three unless you can do calc two and do calc one and do algebra. And before that, division, multiplication, addition, subtraction. You can't dismiss it all you can't throw it out but you can't stay at addition and subtraction if you're ever going to get to calc three make sense same thing's true in our faith a lot of us are trying to live a calc three world with the kindergarten arithmetic make sense and it's not working for us it's just not working for us we haven't built upon the very foundational pieces that were taught to us and then when we face these big hard questions of faith and of life it starts to break down because what we were taught in Sunday school isn't built for our adult life. And there's good reason for that. What we're looking for, friends, is Christian maturity, and it is sorely missing in our culture. What do I mean by Christian maturity? I don't mean holier than thou. I don't mean I'm so heaven-minded, I'm no earthly good. What I mean by Christian maturity is what I believe, and the other scholars believe the Hebrew writer was saying, and that is this, that Christian maturity is the capacity distinguished between good from evil. Very, very important, friends. Without Christian maturity, you could argue that the world will not even know the difference between good and evil. Because who calls it? Who decides? Who says what's good, what's evil? 
Is genocide good or evil? Depends on who's in power, right? Unless it's Jesus, and then genocide's off the table. You see, this Christian maturity thing is super important for the world that we live in today. And, and it takes a lot of practice and hard work. The problem with Christian maturity, though, is you may say, well, it's easy. We know good from evil. I mean, we just know that instinct, instinctively. Do you? So, so tell me what you see here. How many of y'all see an old lady? How many of y'all see a young lady? How many of y'all see both ladies? Right? Depends on whether you saw this in psychology class. And, and if you see one, then you normally see one. You see the other, you see the other. When you see both, you see both over time. Right? There, oh, there she is. Okay. See the hat? Looking away? Anyway. So, uh, look it up later. Okay. But this is, this is my point. When it comes to Christianity, people say, oh, I know good from evil. I know, uh, I'm just asking. See, and they say, well, it's in black and white. Well, that's in black and white. Right? It's black and white. It's very clear, right? Which is it? Is it an old lady or a young lady? Well, it depends on who you are. See, we need, we need to be able to begin the conversation without excluding people off the front end. But this discernment of who you see and how you see the world only comes by practice and exercise. Really. You can only know good and evil by practicing that discernment piece, that Christian maturity piece. And the thing about discernment is that practice and exercise are unpleasant for most of us. Any of you all just love to exercise? Some of you do. I don't. I do it, but I don't love it. Because if I'm going to get stronger, I have to do it. And, and here's the thing about practice and exercise that's so abhorrent in Edmund. We just hate this. It includes falling and failing. Either works in your blank there. Falling or failing. Being hurt and trying again. And we just don't like doing that. But certainly in the Christian faith, this is what it requires. And, and we don't like to do this. We step away from it. No, no, I, I don't want to do that. So much so that grown men like myself from time to time uh, will no longer play football. But will play it on a game station. And we'll play with the best team against the Rhode Island Spiders and beat them 105 to 0. That's, that's something in us, right? We just don't like to fail. We like to win and win big. That's, that's how humanity's made. But that's not what Christianity looks like. Christianity is to be deeper, transformational, but it includes practice and exercise, which can be difficult and painful. Andy Stanley, in his series, uh, as he rolled this out a few years ago, uh, said it like this. He said, first century Christians were considered atheists by the Roman culture because they did not believe in the Roman pantheon of gods or worship the deified Caesars. Now, you may say, well, that's a very weird leap. Where, where are you going with this? Friends, even the concept of atheism changes, depends on the culture you're in. You see, Christians who believed in the one God, Jesus being God, everybody thought they were atheists because they were the minority position. The majority position that had been around for years and years was all the Greek pantheon, all the Roman pantheon, and every leader known as Caesar was to be worshipped as a god. And if you didn't do it, you were considered an atheist. You were on the outside of religion, of the state religion. Does that make sense? So even the concept of who's an atheist and who isn't depends on who's in charge and where you live. Now this is important. As our culture shifts, we begin to understand these things. So what I'm hoping to do is to talk to you and to talk to friends of yours, and I hope you'll bring them next week, about what I'll call Christian deconversion. We see this all the time. Christian deconversion looks like this. It's people who used to go to church. When I was starting Acts 2 back in 99, uh, I'd walk the neighborhoods, and I would say, do y'all go to church? And I'd say, I used to go to church. 
And I say, well, where'd you go? Well, I went, you know, to so-and-so over here, over here with grandma or my mom. I used to go. Well, do you go now? No. I, you know, no. Uh, I did when I was a kid. But I, don't, I don't go anymore. And, and I would say, well, why not? And the conversation normally took one of two turns. And I want to explain them both to you. The first one goes like this. Well, I grew up in a religious environment. I grew up going to church with grandma or my aunt or my uncle or whoever. I used to go to church. Grew up in a religious environment. And somewhere along the line, it was working. It was great. I experienced a childhood conversion. Now, I'll, when I say childhood, I mean under 16. They weren't driving themselves to church. Okay? 80% of the folks that come to faith come to faith before there's 18. Okay? So most of the people who are Christians come to faith when they're little. Sometime before uh, they're adults. All right? So this is very normal. But then... You know what happened because it probably happened to you. After high school, where do they go? They go to college. A lot of them do. They move out. And they transition to an irreligious environment, and they liked it. You liked it. A lot. A lot. Now, what do I mean by this? I'll use myself as an example. Um, and don't email me or call me later about this. Um, I grew up in a home where almost assuredly both my grandfathers were alcoholics. Really brutal. My parents lived through it. They became teetotalers. Uh, alcohol was the devil. You couldn't touch it. You couldn't have it in your house. You would never order it. You would never purchase it. You would never do anything with it. That's just the way it was in my house. So I went to college, um, and I didn't. I was 18, 19, 20. My other friends would. I wouldn't. Uh, they'd party. I would be angry when they'd come home drunk and throw up in their beds. Um, I would be angry about this because, well, that's foolish. That's dumb. You're immature. Uh, and then I got to be 21. Uh, and I thought, well, it's legal. I should probably try a beer when I'm 21. So I did. It was okay. And now, if you had talked to my mom and dad, what they told me was I was going to have one beer, and then I was going to have 21, then I was going to be passed out drunk in a, in a ditch uh, and be hijacked and taken to Mexico. I mean, that's the way the story would go in my life. And you know what? It didn't happen. It didn't happen. And other friends of mine who, who drank a little bit, uh, not only did their life not end, they could talk to girls for the first time in their life. Now, this is not a sermon about the uh, great things of alcohol. Don't mishear me. Uh, there are plenty of folks whose lives are completely ruined and upside down because of alcohol. Okay? I mean, let's, let's not go there. What I'm saying, though, is this. When I had my first beer at 21, mind you, 21, mind you, um, <laughs> nothing happened. Right? Nothing happened. And if you were like me, something else happened to you, and you think to yourself, well, if that's not true... What else not true, right? What, el what else about faith? Now, I'd also submit to you that my Roman Catholic brothers and sisters uh, or my German Lutheran friends in Germany, uh, they've never had an issue with that at all, right? I mean, they've, it's just a different thing. So part of this is about what tribe, what culture, what time, okay? That's not a core doctrine of Christianity, friends, whether you drink or don't drink. It's not, now, there's some wisdom around that that we can talk about privately, but that's not what, that Christianity doesn't live and fall on whether you drink or not. It doesn't. Might have been the 1950s, doesn't now, for sure. Okay? It never did. So then what happens next? So if that's not true, what else isn't true? And we begin asking adult questions about your childhood faith. Maybe we went to church, maybe we went to a Sunday school class, we start asking these questions. And depending on where we went, oftentimes you received faith-based answers to fact-based questions. This didn't work for you. Uh, you're at college, you go to philosophy class, you go to science class, uh, there's things like DNA testing, there's things like carbon dating, uh, and you read Genesis, 
and you uh, look at the science about how old the earth is, they don't match up, and now you got a problem. you got a tension. And you're like, yeah, I, just, I don't know. And, and you understand, friends, that, that before Darwin, this wasn't all that much of a problem in, for a lot, of, a lot of the world. right? If you follow me on Facebook, I post an article from Christianity Today that talks about uh, science and religion and how they go together. Some of the most important scientists were Christians, um, particularly those that were leading into uh, Newton and the discovery of gravity. Gravity is really important, by the way. Don't care whether you believe in it or not, super important. Right? So you received faith-based answers to fact-based questions, and you woke up and you did not believe anymore. I see this younger and younger now. Kids, eighth grade, ninth grade, and they're like, I just don't know. I'm, I'm reading all this stuff online. I'm reading all this stuff uh, at school. I'm being taught by some really smart people, and it doesn't match up exactly. I, I just don't believe. And that's, that's one of the things that people would tell me, why they used to go to church. But way more often, it looks like this. One and two are the same. I grew up in a religious environment. I experienced a childhood conversion, and then I experienced a faith-crushing event didn't have anything to do with doctrine, didn't have anything to do with belief. It had to do with a fate-crushing event. Nine times out of ten, friends. I see this all the time. It's not so much that people stop believing in God, they're mad at God. They don't know what to do about it. What do you do when you're mad at God? And we'll talk about that some more later. Let me say this first of all. Talk to God about it. God's a big God. He can handle it. So just talk to Him. But this is very, very serious because wonderful people, I mean great people, some of my best friends, um, this is their story, and they told it to me with tears running down their face. Uh, they said, Mark, you know, I was like, well, that's weird. You haven't been in church, but now, you know, you're just awesome. Um, you were awesome before, but, I mean, now you're helping us out with these things. What's going on? And, and my friend said to me, he said, you know, um, I, I grew up in church, uh, went to youth group, the whole thing, got married. Um, we started going back to church. Everything was great. Uh, and then my wife's mom got terminally ill. And I loved my wife so much, and I was a person of faith, and I was praying that through, and I was on my knees, and I was begging God to take the illness away from my mother-in-law. And I really felt like because I had faith, and because I had faith in my faith, and I was really there, I told my wife and all the family at the hospital that she was going to be okay. That God had shared that with me. She was going to be fine. She died. That night. And go back to church. See, it wasn't that he did not believe. We could not reconcile the God of my childhood with the real pain of my life with the result that I could not believe anymore. It's not just that I didn't want to or I didn't. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. I'm very real, friends. Very painful. Some of you have been through this. Very, very difficult. The problem with these things, friends, is that at the very center of our church, the very center of our faith, is the cross, which is the worst symbol of pain and suffering and death there is. We need to understand the master that we serve gave his life that we might live, and we can get tripped up on what I'm going to call baby gods. Baby gods. We, little b, little g, because they can't get you there. They can't get you there. And so I want to see if you can guess uh, some of these. I bet you can. Uh, So the first one, let's see. Do you know who that is? Do you know what that is? The bodyguard God. The bodyguard God says nothing bad will happen to you. Nothing bad's going to happen to you. 
Some of you still believe in this baby God, but it's a false idol, friends. It's no different than a fertility God or any other kind of God. Now, at this point, you're making me really nervous because you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. I saw you pray for a man in the military down here. They're going to Afghanistan. You come, you lay hands on them. You ask the Lord's protection. Yes, of course, that's our heart's desire. That's what we want from God. Let me ask you this question. How many people died in World War II? Suppose any of those folks were Christians? Any of those folks good people? Any of those folks have their church pray for them? Of course. Of course. We live in a fallen and broken world, friends. This bodyguard God does not exist. God hears our prayers. Sometimes God answers our prayers. But that's God's to do. Nothing bad will happen to you. Now, friends, for a long time in my life, I was sold out for this God. I mean, it's a pretty good God if it works. But it doesn't work. So much so that if you were like me, uh, and you grew up in the Methodist church as a kid, you had a little red hymnal. And, and hymn number 207 uh, was, Be Not Dismayed. I still remember it. Verse 3 goes like this, written in late 1800s, early 1900s. It says this. If you know it, sing it with me. That'll be awkward. All you may need, he will provide. God will take care of you. Nothing you ask will be denied. Really? Really? I mean, the pastor should have come down out of the pulpit and said, No, stop singing that. That is not true. That's bodyguard God, right? Nothing you ask will be denied. God will take care of you. God will take care of you through every day or all the way. He will take care of you. God will take care of you. Sometimes. <laughs> right? Most of the time. Not always. And if your bodyguard God fails you, if you're not careful, you'll step all the way out. But friends, make no mistake, you're not stepping out against Christianity. Christianity looks like that. Not my will but thine be done, Jesus says in the garden, right? And he's really clear about this. Some of you prefer this God. Anybody know what that one is? On-demand God. We love on-demand God, don't we? Boop, boop, boop. I'll take F3 for some communion, please. Boop, right? Now, the trick about on-demand God is this. What I hear people say is, look, the prayer wasn't even about me. It was a fair and selfless request. I'm praying for my grandson to get that job. Your grandson has to apply for that job. Right? He's not getting a job because he never applied, Grandma. Right? There's things that have to go into place here. We don't have an on-demand God. We don't worship a genie in a bottle. I mean, seriously, we got to get past this. And think about this. If you say you serve a God who always serves you, that's not a God. Don't know what that is. There's lots of names for it. It's not God. God is someone we serve and give our lives to, not someone who serves us. That we have to get right, whether that's Judaism or Christianity or some other faith. If, that, if your God's serving you, that's not a God, right? Now, one of my favorite ones, I'm going to pick on somebody here, I'm sure, you know what that one is? Boyfriend and girlfriend God. Ooh, I love that one. He feels so good. So good. Right? You remember being 13, 14, 15, 16, having kids 13, 14, 15, 16 in your house? And, and you look up and you wake up, somebody's in your house. The boyfriend and the girlfriend, they're always there. And they're always touching. You know, like, mm, oh. now, you, now, I grew up in western Oklahoma. You know, you could tell who was boyfriend and girlfriend by cruising the streets, right? Because in the pickup truck, People who were not dating, the driver drove, 
and the person sitting next to her sat by the door. But if you were dating, the girl was all the way in the middle, and the boy was driving with his left hand so they could rub shoulders while they drove. <laughs> touching each other. Right? Some of y'all still doing that, right? Feels so good. Present all the time. You just feel them. So good. So good. You know, this is, this is where we say we have an emotionally moving presence, right? And, and so, friends, you know, you're, sometimes you're feeling it. The music's good or you're really being moved. There's this wonderful thing. Friends, not every day of your life is going to be the last night of summer camp. It's not. It's just not. And, and some of you, I know, and, and I know we have a hard time as Methodists. Like, we raise hands like this. That's it. That's all we got. But some of you come from backgrounds where you're like this, like, yes, God, yes. And that's great here, but I want you to know this. When I lived in New York City and I went to the Violent Femmes and Pogues concert, don't tell my parents, I saw a lot of people doing this too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not Christian, but they were feeling it. Right? Right? So a feeling isn't necessarily a Christian feeling. It's a feeling. Sometimes I go to church and I feel it. Sometimes I go to church and I don't feel it. Does that mean God's there, God's not there? No. Now, I will tell you, I think it's really important when you've been married 26 years, like Chantel and I, uh, not every day you're going to feel it. Right? And I think that's a good thing. I like to know that Chantel's at home whether I feel her presence or not. You know how awkward it would be if I tried to finish the sermon hand in hand the whole time, preaching. That would just be awkward. It would be weird, wouldn't it? Yeah, it's not right. So we've got to move past girlfriend, boyfriend, guy. Right? Uh, maybe you grew up with this one right? If it's enjoyable, the answer is no, right? No fun, no good. There were people who grew up in churches that thought that God was mad at them. Friends, God's not mad at you. God's not mad at you. He's not, right? This is the guilt God, the God who loves you, but he doesn't really like you. He just puts up with you, you know, and a lot of you feel this way or grew up this way. That's not true. God loves you. God likes you. He doesn't just love you. He likes you. He does, can you imagine, and maybe you've had this experience, um, where there's a cute little baby, and, and you, know, you don't have babies, but they're in the little pen uh, or in their crib, and you come up and you peek over them, and they're laying there, and they're pooping on themselves and doing all the nasty things babies do, and you go, I'm mad at you. No, nobody does that. That's dumb, right? And God's not doing that to you. God is super old, and we are super little, right? God loves you. He likes you. He's not mad at you. Please say this. God is not mad at you. Say it. He's not mad at you. He's not. He's not. Now, some people believe in the anti-science God. This is super important. We have some physicians and surgeons in the room. Super important. God or science is a false alternative. Say it with me. God or science is a false alternative. Right? Absolutely true. Uh, around here, when our kids get sick, we take them to the doctor. And we pray for them. It's not one or the other. We do both. And we hope that the doctors are praying for wisdom as they treat those children. Don't, don't you? Right? I, I think so. Friends, anti-science God says this. And, and people do it all the time. If it's unexplainable, it must be God. No. If it's unexplainable, you must be ignorant. <laughs> we just haven't learned it yet. No, seriously. Unexplainable doesn't mean it's God. It means it's unexplainable. If anybody's done logic, you understand this. Just because it's unexplainable doesn't mean it's from God. It might be, but it might not be. Right? 
In the Old Testament, we had all this stuff, all these laws about washing your hands and not working with dead people uh, and meat with before you had a ritual cleansing and then we were reintroduced. And the Jews were the only people surviving, right? And then later, we learned about germs. Now, when we learned about germs, does that mean God doesn't exist? No, no, God exists. And even if we learned everything there is to know, God is still God. God is still God. So, with all that said, if your grown-up questions are more than your childhood faith can take, don't quit. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Don't quit. Don't quit. Don't quit. Move from milk to meat to maturity, friends. Right? When you're little, that's fine. You're, you know, you're going to be on your mama's milk. That's good. But at some point, if you're going to grow mature, you've got to move on up. Paul says the same thing in other places in the Scripture. Now, now this is important. Andy and Melissa allowed me to use this, these photos uh, Melissa, many of you know, uh, little Elijah, awesome, little toe-headed boy, runs around here like a whirlwind, fantastic. But in these pictures, he was still in utero. And when Anna, uh, their oldest, asked, what's going on? Um, what's going on inside of mommy? Where do babies come from? Um, they told her exactly, medically, everything that makes a baby. She'll be in therapy for the rest of her life. <laughs> right? That would be inappropriate. Of course they didn't do that, Right? They said, well, Elijah's and mommy's what? Right? I don't think, did you say Elijah's and mommy's uterus? No. What's well, a uterus? I mean, it gets awkward quick. Right? So, at three, mommy's tummy's fine, helpful, good. Right? At 15, don't you dare stay there. Right? Your son or daughter comes to you, where do babies come from? You can't be there. You, no, seriously, you cannot be there. Right? Worse yet, what if you're talking to a couple that's been infertile for 10 years? And they go to the infertility specialist and they want to know, can you help us? Can you help us? And the doctor says, it's fine. A stork's going to drop one in your tummy in God's time. The most cruel thing you could ever imagine saying to that couple. Right? Mommy's tummy doesn't cut it for them. Right? And you don't have to believe that nonsense in order to be a Christian. You don't. You don't. And we don't need to require it. We need to open the gates for people to take a step in and then grow them in faith. And quite frankly, we have to grow too. We have to be willing to have the hard, uncomfortable conversations about wherever people are, wherever their stage of faith. So the end of chapter 6 goes like this. I'm sure that this won't happen to you, the people who are leaving, friends. He says, I have better things in mind for you, salvation things. God doesn't miss anything, and he's not mad at you, friend. He knows perfectly well all the love you've shown him by helping needy Christians. That was a part of the faith even then, and that you keep at it. And now I want each of you to extend that same intensity toward a full-bodied hope and keep at it till the finish. Stay at it, friends. Don't drag your feet. Be like those who stay the course. That's your blank. Stay the course, friends, with committed faith, and then get everything promised to them. God's not done with us. We're to grow and develop. Stay the course, friends. That's our action step. Stay the course with adult resolve. Don't, don't short end it back here with childhood faith. And then help another up. Because, friends, as we practice and exercise our faith, we are going to fall. We are going to fail. And it's going to be painful. But together we lift up and we move forward in Jesus' wonderful name. And we grow together. Amen.